privilege it is to be able to have our students lead us in worship this morning. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The church is in good hands. The church is in good hands. And I tell you, I, I thought it was really nice of them to be gracious enough to let Pastor Dave be a part of it. So that was really good. That was really good. That was really good. Well, we're in our second week of this series we're calling Connected, and we're, we're really looking at temperaments, personalities, uh, giftings, abilities, love languages. Yes, there's a thing called love languages. We're, we're looking at these things over the series, and I just want to admit something. It, it might appear like, psych, like psychology rather than theology. However, understanding our unique wiring is at the heart of our relationship with God and others. God calls us into this relationship with him, this holistic relationship with him, and he calls us to love others with a Christ-like kind of love. A verse that's familiar to most of us is Matthew 22, 37 through 39. It says this way, it says, And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your, your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Therefore, when we look at really discovering our temperament and our personality and our, and our abilities, our unique wiring, we understand that what we're really doing is understanding those things that enable us to love God more holistically and to seriously love God with the, with the love that he's given us. Our, our exploration of our unique wiring of how God can and will redemptively use it and, and to allow us to flourish in our relationship with him and others. And that's what really God has promised us in Christ, that we'll flourish with him and that we can flourish in our relationship with those around us. In light of God's calling to, to love others and, and bear with one another, I would pose that what we're looking at is not mere psychology, but actually deep theology, deep theology. And again, this week, we're going to be looking at, at temperaments. The psalmist describes why the study of people is so fascinating an experience when he writes that all of us have been fearfully and wonderfully made. Let that sink in for a minute. Let that sort of marinate in your spirit. Fearfully and wonderfully made. It doesn't matter what your experience has been, that God, when he created you, he created you with purpose. He created you to love you. He created you to be in a loving relationship with you. And he created you in such a way that you would be able to, to be able to come alongside, not just spouses and families, but the church to come alongside other people in the church to be able to, to advance his mission on earth, that people would know the love and salvation of Christ. No one of us is the same. And, and that's fun, and it's also messy, right? Not a one of us is the same. We're all unique, and there's several contributing factors that make us unique, and, and one of those is temperament. Now, what do I mean by temperament? Temperament is the combination of inborn traits that simultaneously affect, subconsciously affect our behavior. Our temperaments are determined from birth. We're, we're born with our temperaments. And I believe understanding our temperament really provides insight into our strengths and weaknesses. No matter what your temperament is, you have strengths and weaknesses. Many times your strength and weakness could even be very closely related to each other. It's just whether you're using what God has given you in a healthy way or an unhealthy way, right? So you're laughing. I know you know what I'm talking about. In fact, every temperament has its strengths and weaknesses. The good news, and this is what really excites me this morning. The good news is that the Holy Spirit has been given to believers to enable us to improve our natural strengths and overcome our weaknesses as we cooperate with him. 
But God is in the business of redeeming us. Right, church? He's the greatest recycler of all time. And, and so we're going to look at how he does that with our temperament. But first, let's keep two things in mind. First of all, no temperament is better than another. So we talk about temperaments, a lot of times people say, well, I wish I had that one, and I wish I didn't have mine. And, and there's no one temperament better than the other. In fact, all are necessary for the body to be complete, God's church. We, we need each other. The second thing is knowing our temperament and that of others really does help us more completely fulfill God's call to love others. It only makes sense. If we know ourselves, we know someone else a little better than as we're, we're being led by the Spirit, we can use our strengths in order to bring benefit to someone else and, and, and be able to overcome our weaknesses so we're not tearing people down. Now, there are many ways that, that temperaments have been defined. In fact, some of you know some of them, discs, Mariah's Briggs. I'm going to use what I believe is the simplest and, and by far the oldest known one, and that's the four temperaments. And it's been around for centuries. In fact, 2,400 years ago, Hippocrates, Hippocrates, I knew I was going to mess that up this service. I had it right the last one. Hippocrates, 2,400, I didn't know him personally. 2,400 years ago, he's the first one who wrote out these temperaments. And he described them. But I would argue that 500 years before him, a man by the name of Agar in Proverbs, he actually writes of the negative quality of these traits. In other words, when these traits are operated out of unhealth, what does it look like? And look what he writes, Proverbs 30, 11 through 14. There are those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers. There are those who are clean in their own eyes, but not washed of their filth. There are those how lofty are their eyes and how high their eyelids lift. There are those whose teeth are swords, whose fangs are knives, to devour people from off the earth the needy from among mankind. Not a positive picture of temperament, by the way. Yet we get the picture then of, of how important it is to study them. I mean, we read that. None of us want to exhibit that. None of us want to have those traits in our life. And, and he, he talks about the worst, right? The disrespect to parents and self-righteousness and, and having pride and, and ruthlessness. This insight alone ought to drive us to understand the temperaments. Paul writes to the church in Rome, Romans 12, 3 through 4. For the body of the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So he's talking about the fact that we ought to evaluate ourselves honestly and prayerfully. Like be honest about who we are, where we're at, where we need to be, where we're going. And God equips us all differently. Why? Because the church needs it. The church functions when, when we bring our differences together and, and God's redeeming us and allowing us to, to, to reach that common goal of unity in Christ. Now, a key question people ask is, is can I change my temperament? And the simple answer is no. You can't. You're born with it. Your temperament is what your temperament is. And, and, and yet it can be redeemed. And we're going to look at that in a bit. And what I mean by redeemed. But here are the four temperaments. And people describe the four temperaments a little differently, but it's from ancient Greek. And so, so this is the way I pronounce it. If you pronounce them differently, that's okay. Okay? You pronounce it your way, I'll pronounce it my way. But, but cleric, sanguine, melancholy, and phlegmatic. We're going to look at each of them. And when you look at the description of the temperaments, I think many of you are going to identify yourselves. And some you're going to realize you're more than one. 
And I'll tell you, I'll be a little revealing this morning and let you know what I am, what my makeup is. But you'll find it, you're maybe a little more of a one. I, I do have friends that are like pure clerics, pure sanguines, pure melancholy, and, and they're sort of fun to watch interact with each other. But most of us are a little bit of a mixture of some of these. But let's jump in. The first we're going to look at is cleric. Now, the key word you think of when you, when you think of a cleric is dominance. Dominance. Interesting, only 3% of our culture are clerics. Only 3%. Some point to Paul as a cleric, and we're going to look at that in a minute. But the emphasis is on shaping the environment, overcoming opposition, and accomplishing results. The greatest fear of a cleric is being taken advantage of. Now, why is that important to know? Because when we operate out of our fear, I'm going to use a technical word here, we get wacky. Okay? When we operate out of our fear, we get wacky. And so part of the redemption process is we don't operate out of our fear. We trust God. He becomes our foundation, and we can operate out of our strengths. But when we're operating out of our fears, we typically are, are, find ourselves immersed within our weaknesses. People who score high in the t- intensity of the cleric are, are very active in dealing with problems and challenges. High clerics are people described as demanding, forceful, egocentric, um, strong-willed, driving, determined, ambitious, aggressive, and pioneering. Did you notice something about that list? If, if, if you find yourself in a cleric category, and I pick on us first, uh, you realize that list has some things that you go, I like that description. And other ones you go, I don't like that. There's strengths and weaknesses. And the way that we present ourselves in each of the temperaments allows either the strength to come through or the weakness to come through. I want to look at Paul as a cleric and definitely just give it an overview on these four. But Paul as a cleric, some people see him as a cleric and he was, he was so determined as, as a persecutor of the church. Like when we first read about Paul, he has an objective. And it's to persecute the church, and he is trying to do his best to persecute the church. Now, clerics are straight shooters. So I've always sort of chuckled when I realized how Jesus revealed himself to Paul. It wasn't in a gentle message. Like Jesus divinely like just appears to him and knocks him off his horse. He's even blinded for a while. That's how you get a cleric's attention. And he says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Paul comes to Christ, is redeemed, and he's he's being sanctified, becoming more like Jesus in what his character, his love, his priorities, and his purpose. And and all of a sudden, what is he determined? He's determined to build the church. And we read this of Paul, that he, in the whole area that God had called him to, that the gospel had been so implanted that everyone was able to hear the gospel from someone. That, that's, a, that's a redeemed cleric right there. I love this story of Paul, and it's, it's one you would think of a cleric. That he's preaching the gospel, the town he's in is upset with him, so they take him outside, they try to kill him by throwing stones at him. They literally leave him for dead. But Paul the cleric gets up and the next day travels 12 more miles to preach the gospel. You can't keep a good cleric down. You know, that's just, that's just who he is. And, and so you, you have this cleric that dominates and only 3%. Keep that in your mind, only 3% of our culture are clerics. Now let's move on to sanguines. Sanguine, the key word for a sanguine is influence. Only 11% of our culture are sanguines, 11%. And some point to Peter as a sanguine, and I, I love looking at that. We're going to do that in a minute. But for a sanguine, the emphasis is on um, shaping the environment by influencing or persuading others. The greatest fear of a sanguine is being rejected. Rejection. 
having people not like them. People with high silent scores influence others through talking and activity and tend to be emotional. They're described as convincing, magnetic, political, enthusiastic, persuasive, warm, demonstrative, trusting, and optimistic. And when we look at Peter, we definitely see these traits. Every time we find Peter in the gospel, what is he doing? He's talking. Look it up. It's interesting. Every time you see him, he's talking. And he's a, he's a true sanguine because sometimes, he, I mean, he just blurts out what's in his heart, right? And sometimes it's a good thing. One time he says something and Jesus says to him, you know what? You didn't really come. God gave you that divinely. And you can see sanguine Peter looking at the rest going, wow. But another time Peter said something and Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. Now that's rejection, right? Not, not a good one, Peter. But, but he's always, he's just always, he's always talking. Think about it. And when we think about Peter and, and his, when, he, when he betrays Christ and when he realizes a deep sin, where do we, we see him? He's broken. I mean, he's in tears. He's feeling it. He's feeling it. But what does Peter become? Peter becomes a strong, resolute leader of the early church. And in the book of Acts, we see an influential leader and preacher. Why? Because he's filled with the Spirit of God. Filled with the Spirit of God. Now, here's the reality. What, I said clerics are, what percentage of the culture do you remember? 3%, right? Sanguines are 11%. This made a lot of sense to me once I understood my temperament a little better because I'm about 50-50 choleric sanguine. Like 50-50, like almost right down the line. I almost have none of melancholy, no phlegmatic in me at all. And when I read that, I went, wow, now I understand. I am in such a minority, it's ridiculous. Like, I'm in a 14 percentile, you know? And, and that's just interesting. It, it, it raised challenges as a leader because you can understand that you typically expect people to be like you, even though we know people aren't. So you expect them to think like you and, and, and react like you. And, and I found very quick that's just not true. That's not the way life works. I had a friend years ago who was on staff with me, and when she would come into my office, she would say she knew if it was choleric Craig or sanguine Craig. And if it was choleric, Craig, she would just ask the question and knew I'd get to the point because I was doing something. If it was sanguine, Craig, she said she knew she was going to sit down and be there for a little while. The staff would tell you it's still true today. <laughs> you know, if they really say, I have one question, I'll only take a minute. If I'm in my sanguine mode, I'm like, Craig, behave yourself because they really want to get out of here. You know, if I'm in cleric mode, I'm like, thank God I'm doing something, Right. It's just sort of, we're wired that way. And, and over time, God redeems it. And he places so much of himself in this, in this body that he made to be this cleric sanguine. And we'll talk about that in a minute, but let's move on. Uh, let's move on to the melancholies. The, the key word for a melancholy is conscientiousness. 17%. Now, by the way, if you add those three together, you realize that we're coming on a personality trait that's more dominant in our society than any of the others, Right? The melancholies are still part of this minority group of 31%. Some point to Moses as a melancholy. We'll look at that in a minute. But emphasis is on working conscientiously within existing circumstances to ensure quality and accuracy. The greatest fear is being told they did something wrong. For a melancholy, they work so hard for exactness, but their fear is that they did something wrong. And if they're told that, it hurts them deeply. And if we operate out of our fears, we'll find our weaknesses rising to the surface. If we're operating out of our redeemed self and the power of the Spirit, our strengths can come to the surface. There's confidence in Jesus. Persons with high melancholy 
styles adhere to rules, regulations, and structure. They were probably mostly the safeties at school. Did anyone grow up when they were safeties at school? You know, with the little badge, and they were in the hall, and they would tell you what to do. Yeah, okay. I never had a safety badge. Okay. They like to do quality work and do it right the first time. High melancholy people are careful, cautious, exacting, neat, systematic, diplomatic, accurate, and tactful. And, and, and for instance, a melancholy would make a good accountant. Many accountants are melancholies. Now, I'm 50% sanguine, so if you're sanguine, I'm not picking on you, I'm picking on us. You do not want us to do your taxes. You just don't, because we want to have fun. And somewhere in doing all the figures, we go, what's it really matter anyway? You know? You would sign the form, and the IRS would knock on your door, and you'd realize how unfun that was, right? But melancholies are the ones that we have so many who work on our financial team. and do They're into that exactness. They're working on that. You know, when, when I'm asking numbers around here, I'll say, just give me an estimate. But when they put the reports together for everyone else, it's exact. Thank God, right? And, and we need each other. We need each other. And, and so we, we see this. And Moses, the reason they sort of attribute him as a melancholy in part is because, do you remember Moses? He saw this injustice. And melancholies can pick out injustice quicker than almost anyone else. He sees this injustice. He takes it in his own hands, though he kills a guy, Right? Then the people he tries to protect says, you were wrong. <laughs> and what does he do? We think he was sent in exile. Now, he could have been sent in exile because his life was in jeopardy, but the reality of it is he put himself in exile, didn't he? Even to the point when God calls him, he downplays all the giftings that he has. We know in the book of Acts, he was, he was, he was as, as educated as anyone else in all of Egypt. But he says to God, I can't speak, I don't know anything. He's still exiling himself because he's operating out of his fear. But when Moses surrenders himself to God, it says of him that he was the humblest man that ever lived, the mighty leader with a, a compassionate heart standing between Israel and God. It's a beautiful picture of redemption, isn't it? What God can do when we give ourselves to him. And then the fourth one, and if you've been doing the math, this is 69% of our culture. Now, by the way, that means probably 69% of you. This, this is more you than the others. It's a phlegmatic. And the key word for them is steadiness. Some point to Abraham as a phlegmatic, and I, I think he truly was, and we're going to look at that in a minute. But the emphasis is on cooperating with others to carry out the task. And their greatest fear is loss of relationship. Now, I want you to think about this. 69% of our culture, phlegmatic, greatest fear, loss of relationship. Phlegmatics desperately care about relationship more than the other three temperaments. It doesn't mean we don't. It just means they deeply care for it. And there's some plus and negative to that, and we're going to get to it in a minute. But people with this high phlegmatic scores want a, want a steady pace, right? They want security. Uh, they don't like uh, sudden changes. Um, high phlegmatics are calm, relaxed, patient, uh, possessive, predictable, deliberate, stable, consistent, and tend to be unemotional and poker-faced a little bit. Again, things on the list, that I'm sure if you're reading, you go, oh, I'd love to hear that about myself. And others, you go, I don't like hearing that. There's, there's pros and cons of, of both, right? There's, there's strengths and weaknesses of both. By the way, if you want to know more about this, there is so much online. Uh, and you can go to free temperament test. And you can actually, the four temperaments, you can actually take a test. and It will give you so much more information than I can do in this brief time of just an, an overview. But remember, I, I, I talked about the flagmatic 69%. A couple of things about that. First of all, corporations know that. 
Corporations know that almost 70% of our society are phlegmatics. You say, okay, how do you know? Because they market to you. They don't spend a lot of money marketing to the cleric, which is 3%. Why would they? They, they do maybe a little bit more with the melancholy segment, but really most marketing, when you, I'll tell you what, fast food restaurant. You say, why are you bringing up fast food? I just want you really hungry before you get out of here. Fast food restaurant. You go to a fast food restaurant and you see pictures and numbers. Do you know why they're there? Because of you phlegmatics. They found that it was taking too long for people to order at fast food restaurants. Because phlegmatics would come in and they're talking and they're, Sort of like, what do you like? What would you like? I don't know what I like. And, and, and they put pictures up there. And then you can say, I'll, I'll take a number two. I'll tell you where else they use it is through a drive-thru. When you go through a drive-thru, they'll say what? Hi, welcome to whatever. Would you like to try our? Now, that doesn't bother 70% of you. For me as a cleric sanguine, I go, if I wanted it, I'd order it. <laughs> I know what I want. It's fast food. You're wasting my time. Now, if I'm in my sanguine mood, I probably would talk with them, but not through a voice box. You know what I'm saying? I'll, I'll do it at the counter. And, and so they, they market it that way. And you know, they realize when I said, would you like to try? A lot of flying rags go, sure. Sure, I would. I'd like to try that. And they go, thank you. Ba-ting! You know? The other thing that's interesting, because the greatest fear is loss of relationship, which is a, is, is a plus in some ways when it's not a fear. Relationship's important, right, church? Oh, my goodness, please. Relationship's important, right, church? Okay, good, good, good. I didn't want to have to go back to that. But, but, but the fear of relationship is devastating. Because of that, a phlegmatic will sometimes choose relationship over truth. The scripture tells us what? To speak the truth in love. It's hard for a phlegmatic to do that if they think they're going to hurt someone's feelings. Now, I don't want to just want to pick on phlegmatics. If you're, if you're like me, you're a cleric or a sanguine or are the melancholies in the room, this can be a problem for us too because you probably are in a conversation more times than you would like to admit with a phlegmatic saying something that you believe deeply in and you leave that conversation believing the phlegmatic is on your side where really they just care enough about relationship to let you blabber. Hey, I'm talking about me too. Like, they're so nice, and they let us talk, and they act like they're interested. And then we leave, and we go, man, everyone I talk to agrees with me. It's like, no, 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 you talk to 70% of people who just didn't tell you the truth. That's a challenge. Any of you have jobs that you work with people? We need to know this stuff. You want to lead effectively? You need to know this stuff. You have to build a lot of trust for someone to speak the truth if they're worried about the relationship being broken. Put this in a, in a marriage relationship where you have a phlegmatic and maybe a cleric, and that phlegmatic is so scared because every time they speak the truth in love, the cleric responds out of unhealth, and they're devastated. Well, why won't you speak the truth? Well, I would if you weren't a jerk. I want to speak to the 31% too because you have people in that group that'll, that'll say something like this sometimes. Take me or leave me. This is who I am. I just want to let you know people will leave you. <laughs> I mean, they will. The flag max won't tell you. you they just won't answer your call anymore. <laughs> you know? They're not going to totally get you off Facebook. They're just going to hide you. You know what I mean? 
But it's so important we realize these things so we're interactive with each other, we can appreciate the strengths and help each other work through the weaknesses and really grow in our relationship with God and our relationship with each other. Abraham, the phlegmatic, he said, well, why do you say Abraham's a phlegmatic? I mean, he was a man of faith. He stepped out, but he got himself in trouble. I mean, he should have spoke the truth to the, to the Egyptian pharaoh who had his wife, right? Classic phlegmatic move, mood right here. He, he, he realizes that his people have grown so much, and it's himself and it's his, his nephew, Lot, and they need to separate so that they can live rightly together, right? I mean, they, they have too many crops. So, and, so, and so what does Abraham say to Lot? You choose. We say, but that's the thing of faith. Lot gets to choose, and Abraham believes whatever portion he gets, that God will bless it. That's true, but it's a phlegmatic statement. You choose. When I was in high school, and it wasn't until later, when I, I mean, I've been looking at the temperaments for over 30 years now, but it, but it made more sense later than it did then. On the weekends, I had about 12 friends. We'd always hang around. And, and, and on the weekend, they would look to me to decide what we were going to do. Now, it may sound cool to you, but it got old to me. And one weekend, I decided, I'm not doing it. They're going to decide. And I remember, as clear as day, it was, it was a defining moment in my life. I sat there, and they said, what are we going to do tonight? And I said, well, Friday night, I said, you decide. I'm not deciding. Whatever you want. Five minutes later, I said, let's go to the beach. And they said, okay. And we went to the beach. So I thought, <laughs> I thought, this is crazy. I was trying to find out why I had such an amazing upbringing. I mean, my parents were great. I, they really were. It wasn't we didn't have challenges, but, but I mean, it, it, was, it was pretty easy. And, and, and I was starting to learn about the temperaments. And so I was so excited. It was college break. And I decided I would take this test, these three tests to my parents, my mom, my dad, and to my brother, and ask them to do it. The first thing that indicated their temperament a little bit is they did it, right? And so they took the test. And when they took the test, I realized I was a cleric and they were not. And so many times in our, in our, when we were growing up, if we went somewhere, they said, what do you want to do? And I, I'd probably be the one to sign one part. I'd say, yeah, I want to do this. And they all said, that sounds fine. And I realized, what a great, like it was the perfect cleric sign one utopia. <laughs> now, when I left the home, I realized life is not like that. <laughs> Life is not like that. It doesn't always work that way. All, I know all this can seem a little bit overwhelming, but I do encourage you, after 30 years of studying temperaments, I'm still learning. Still learning. I've been called in like to help school leadership teams work through this. I've been called in by friends who own businesses. I've done this for churches, you know, help them sort of understand the team dynamics types. I'm still learning all the time. There's a lot to learn. But here's some takeaway points that will help you before we talk about what it means to walk in a redeemed personality. First of all, again, everyone is born with a temperament makeup. Every one of us is. And all our temperaments have both strengths and weaknesses. But here's what we're going to venture into. Through salvation in Christ, we're offered the spirit who, when we surrender to his work in our lives, gives us the power to overcome our weakness and live under our strengths. Isn't that encouraging? The, God, the good news is for, for all of us is that God has given us the Holy Spirit. Those of us in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit. And, and he helps us, what, overcome our flesh, our weaknesses, and, and really magnify our strengths. They become the people that God has called us to be in him. By the way, not a Christian clone. How boring would that be? Not a Christian clone, but, it, but the original version of how God created us to be. I believe... In the garden, Adam and Eve, before the fall, they only had strengths. Sin came, the fall came, and now they have weaknesses. So we're dealing with that. We're still flawed, aren't we? 
being redeemed, waiting for the day when Christ returns, work is finished, paradise, only strength. But now we have this amazing gift of the Spirit of God to help us magnify our strengths and overcome our weaknesses. Paul writes to the Romans, Romans 12, 1 and 2. This is a, a passage I recite so many times. I know you've heard it over and over again. But it's one of those pivotal passages in Scripture. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What's Paul saying? He's saying, in view of all that God has done, we're to give our whole selves over to God. Worship, then, isn't just singing. Worship is giving of our whole selves to the Lord. And then look what happens, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is his will, God's will, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We give ourselves to God, and by the way, that's the first step, right? We give ourselves to God, we receive him as Savior and Lord, and then he helps us, he transforms our thinking. I have a friend, he says, he takes our stinking thinking, and he turns it into something good. And we're able to see things the way he sees things. Becoming like Jesus doesn't mean we, we lose ourselves. It means we enter into the true selves God's created us to be. Think about that. That's powerful. Paul writing again to the Galatians, one of my favorite verses in the New Testament, is Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And in life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Isn't that encouraging? Again, it's not about a Christian clone. It's about coming to Jesus and allowing what parts of him, his character and his love and his his purposes and his priorities to become ours. And then to allow that to express in whatever your temperament is. For me, as a cleric saying, allow those strengths to rise up so I can be a part of what God's doing in the world, caring for my family and my neighbor and my workplace and my region and allowing him to do that stuff. And then later down in Galatians, he writes this, Galatians 5, 22 to 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. It's the fruit of what? The Spirit. It's not my fruit. I I can't work at it hard enough to develop those things in in their entirety. It's it's, as I surrender myself to God, God, his spirit does a work in me. And when you read through that list, some of you are more naturally gifted in some of those things. Like some of you are more naturally patient. I mean, it's not a a gift of the spirit. You're just a patient person. You see, but it says a gift of the spirit. Well, that's the differentiation. The entirety of those things, which can be exhibited through the life of a believer, can only come through the Holy Spirit because some of those go against our natural Tendencies, temperament, patience. Some of you are naturally patient. I am not. Like people who know me now say, well, you don't seem to be really impatient. And I go, I've been a Christian since I was five. And I'm a little older than that now. God's done a work. The Holy Spirit has done a work on me. You've heard me say this so many times, but it's so true. And I want, you just need to hear it. I know I'm not what I ought to be, but I'm not what I used to be. And thank God I'm growing. And that's redemption. Like, I've been saved. My destiny is secure. Heaven is going to be my home. But on earth, there's still a lot of me that needs to be perfected. <laughs> and, and it's interesting. I was having a conversation with a, with a friend of mine in between services, that last service, this service. By the way, if you're watching online, there was a service before this one. And, and I, I was talking to him, and, 
And as I was talking to him, he was, he was just talking about the fact that Paul at one time says, I'm, I'm not like the chief of all sinners. Do you ever read what Paul said that? And he said, I read that one time and realized, no, 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 I'm the chief of all sinners. And I said, no, 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 I'm the chief of all sinners. Because the more you grow in Christ, the more you're thankful for his blessings and his grace and his love. And the more you realize there's growth to happen. Like if, if, if you are sitting in a place right now where you think you've arrived, you have a lot of growing to do. And if you're sitting there thinking you have a lot of growing to do, you do. And you say, but is that the No, no, it's exciting when God does things. It's exciting when, when you would have responded some way in your flesh that would have been so inappropriate and mean, but yet the spirit of God has so transformed you that you say something that's so loving and patient and you go, oh my goodness, that wasn't the fruit of Craig. That was the fruit of God working in my life. There's hope in Jesus, church. There's hope for your marriage. There's, there's hope for your family. There's hope for your neighbors, your workplace, your school, our region. There's hope in Jesus. So four things to overcome our weaknesses. First, enter into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. It, it may sound counterintuitive, but, but you've got to come to the Redeemer to be redeemed. It, it just doesn't work any other way. You've got to come to the Redeemer to be redeemed. So enter into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Secondly, confess. When you operate out of your weakness, just simply confess it for the sin it is. Don't be fearful. Just be honest with God. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to what? Forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I, I'm not going to even reveal how many times I've had to come to the Lord and say, Lord, I screwed up again. You say, well, that doesn't sound like a really holy prayer. Get out of my head. Lord, I screwed up again. And the Lord says, I got it. Blood of Jesus covered it. Get up. Let's walk forward. I'm like, let's go. Let's go. So you got to believe that God is giving you the victory. Many a person in their spiritual journey camp at the sin when God wants you to camp in the victory. I mean, you acknowledge the sin. You don't just walk away from it. You don't act like it's no big deal because you've broken God's heart. You probably hurt people around you. You feel disappointed. You should be. It's not a good thing. Sin's not a good word. It's not popular. Who wants to do it, right? Or you think you do, and once you do it, you realize, man, that took everything I thought it was going to give me. But man, when you camp there, the enemy's won. God says, no, there's victory. Get up. Let's walk. Then we abide in Christ by reading and doing his word. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we become more and more the person God's created us to be. I don't care what the world has told you. I don't even care what you're telling yourself. God says you have been fearfully and wonderfully made. He's given you a temperament with strengths that he wants to leverage so that you can flourish and those around you will benefit. That you can grow in the Spirit's workings in your life to a point to where you can walk in the confidence that God has me and has all of us. And that's the joy. That's the joy of coming to the Lord. I, I ask you this morning really a simple question. What is your next step? What's your next step? Is it to learn more about the temperaments? Is it to come to Jesus? Is it to say, Lord, redeem my temperament? What is it? Whatever it is, won't you take the next step with him? God is madly in love with you. There's hope in Jesus. And no matter what our temperament says, even for us clerics, God can redeem us.
Amen, church? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for just the way that you have made us all so unique. And Lord, many times I just, I just praise you for that because life would be so boring if it weren't like that. And yet all of us in this room know because of that, it's awesome and somewhat messy. But it's worth taking the time to, to learn about ourselves, how you've wired us. It's worth becoming at least a little bit knowledgeable about how others are wired so that, Lord God, we can just grow in our relationship with you and grow in our understanding of how we can truly love others in our journey of becoming like Jesus, that we would express the, the character of Christ and the love of Christ and live according to his priorities and purpose. God, I pray that it's a lot of information that we've looked at in such a short period of time. In some, some ways, it probably feels like drinking from a fire hydrant. But God, somehow in, in, in all this information, may you bring out that one truth that, that you're calling each of us to respond to. To just take that next step with you. Not be overwhelmed with the next 30, but just that next step. Lord, maybe it's receiving you as Lord and Savior. Maybe in the quietness of our heart, even now, we thank you for dying for our sins, being resurrected for our salvation. And we take that first step of redemption, which is coming to the Redeemer. Thank you for, for dying on the cross so we could have life. Thank you for being resurrected so that we can have that resurrected power surge through us. Thank you for the fact that you ascended and preparing a place for us. And, and in your ascension, you gave us this gift of the Holy Spirit that indwells us and empowers us does this amazing work in our life when we cooperate with him. And Lord, thank you for loving us so extravagantly. May we be a people found to have your love oozing from us to others. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.